Hello and welcome to this, the 20th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I'm your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene for me since, and of course I am a third-generation theatre maker, and as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week, because of that generous support, we are able to bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we'll never, ever charge for this podcast. However, we are looking for you to go and put your money into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And as we tell you each week, the simplest way to go and support is just to put your hand in your pocket and go and buy yourself some theatre tickets, whether that's top price tickets at the Abbey or the Gate, or maybe slightly cheaper tickets at a more fringe venue or even if tickets are outside your reach this week or this month go on over to a crowdsourcing website like fundit.ie or indiegogo see if there are any theatre projects over there worthy of your support donations often start from as low as a fiver and there are always great rewards in return for your support and of course there's a lot of ways that you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket go and tell people about this podcast whether that's in person over a cup of coffee or over a pint or when you're at the theatre together having just bought tickets Uh, do please go and share the link as a Facebook post or you can retweet the link to the podcast on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. It's always a huge help for us in terms of chart positioning and algorithms and all that good stuff. Uh, But for those of you who aren't using Apple products, these podcasts are, of course, streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie. Do go back to the first series and indeed the previous episodes in this second series and listen back to all the good stuff there. Leave us a review if you have time over on iTunes or you can simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system that's a one-click deal it only takes five seconds of your time and again massively useful for us in helping to get the word out you can as always follow us on facebook we are facebook.com forward slash rise productions ireland or you can follow us on twitter we are at rise ireland and it's been another busy week here at rise towers we are flat out in the rehearsal room getting ready for this 14 venue nationwide tour of christian O'Reilly's great play the good father um, and i have to say it's coming together beautifully i'm finding fresh stuff in it every single day it's a joy to be back working on such a great play and really it's a joy to be back in the room with two exceptional actors like marie and dan they are finding beautiful beautiful notes uh, in the performances it's just glorious to watch them work their magic uh, we're really looking forward to taking it out on the road and it's coming down the tracks very soon we'll be back out on the road next week kicking off in uh, Drogheda on the 29th and very much looking forward to getting the show out there and I am really looking to getting it around the country in front of all you wonderful people and hopefully you're going to really enjoy it and so that brings us to our guest this week who is none other than the brilliant Patrick Lonergan from NUI Galway uh, a guy who's become a really significant voice to my mind in Irish theatre particularly over the last couple of years in his work in making sure that kind of an archive exists somewhere of the work that's going on he has been really interesting in his writings online and social media posts and has a a huge interest himself in theatre and social media I think he's a fascinating guy I think he's got a brilliant take on the business and I think it's kind of a unique perspective from uh, his academic viewpoint um, but also the fact that he just goes and sees so much work and how aware he is of the the scene here in Dublin and in Ireland generally and also around the world. I think he's a fascinating guy. I think it's a great chat. So let's get straight into it. Here he is, the brilliant Patrick Lonergan. The wonderful Patrick Lonergan. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've been dying to have you on for ages. Yeah, great to be here. Um, Let us start as we start with everyone. So take it back to the very beginning. When did 
the magical world of theatre first capture your attention? Yeah, probably like a lot of people have already said, school. Yeah. Okay. Um, so like people like Connor Hanrity and Jim Cullerton, I went to Belvedere. Excellent. There was a teacher there called Jerry Haw, who very sadly passed away a few years. But I think if you ask around, there are an awful lot of people who got into theatre because of him, either professionally or just continue going. Yeah. So, you know, when I was a kid, we did the stuff like I remember seeing um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat with Johnny Logan which was really sophisticated back then sure. for me anyway, or seeing like the Lamberts came and did the puppets in, uh, in our local community center. Um, but with Jerry Hall, I remember the first thing I saw in the Abbey was, it was 1991 and it was Gary Hines's Plow in the Stars okay. at the Abbey. And this is the one that was really controversial. It mm -hmm. was the one where the actors had their heads shaved and Hugh Leonard was writing in this on the Independent saying it was the worst thing ever. <laughs> and he had brought his English guests to see it and they were appalled too. And the Abbey was saying, no, look at these great reviews from English critics. Um, and it was amazing. And there was a great scene in the middle of it where they, they, in the second act, they dropped a mirror down uh, to represent a window out of the bar. And so suddenly you realize like you're, you're looking at an audience on yeah. the stage, which is us. And then in the middle of our audience, which is also the audience on stage, somebody stands up. I think it was Garrett Kyo. Spectacular. Who plays the speaker, who Brilliant. plays Parik Pierce. And so like what, what's happening there is you could see people getting very kind of shifty and thinking, is this somebody disrupting the performance? What's going on here? And suddenly there was this realization that, you know, we were celebrating a play that was 65 years old at that stage and that had caused riots. And suddenly one person stands up in the middle of this auditorium and you know, seemingly disrupts things. And it was calling back to that, but also showing us how polite we'd become in the interim. Well, right? yeah. um, so that kind of blew me away, to be honest with you. And for the next 18 months or so, the stuff I saw, like I saw Waiting for Godot at the Gate back when it was really, really fresh, yeah. uh, you know, with Barry McGovern uh, playing playing Vladimir and uh, Alan Stanford playing Pozzo and so on. And, yeah. You know, that was amazing. And then I had a friend who was an incredible fan of the Pixies. Okay. And he said, uh, so there's this play on, and it's called Digging for Fire, which was a track on the Pixies' third album, Bossa yeah. Nova. And so we just, we bought tickets. And it was in the Project Arts Centre, as it was back then. This must have been 91, 92. Mm. So arrive at the theatre, and like, there's, you know, there's an art exhibition in the foyer, and it's very kind of far out. And you're stepping over buckets, which are there to collect the rain from uh, falling through the roof. And I went to see this play and it was like it totally blew my mind because uh, these are people who talked about the stuff we were talking about, you know, um, talked about going to America, talked about Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho. Yeah. Cracked the same jokes, used the same bad language, listened to the same music. And all of a sudden I was, I was just sitting there going, I didn't actually know you could have plays that are about us yes because you watch Irish theatre and it's always like somebody you know bringing the potatoes there mammy kind of stuff right and, which is uh, a noble task in it itself. is you know I'm all in favour of bringing in the potatoes mammy but uh, but you know it's always it's, it's this kind of paradox yeah. at the heart of it is that you've got this kind of usually middle class audience in Dublin let's say at the Abbey yeah um, who watch people who are from rural Ireland and talk differently and sound differently but they say that's us. They say that's the national theatre. It's that weird thing, right? And that's, you know, as you say, that's a, that's a tradition and it's grand and it's great. But this was just different. Yeah. And it was really, really different. So I think a lot of people I talked to from, you know, who kind of came through around the same time said that the moment of truth, if it wasn't digging for fire, it was true lines. Right. Around about the same time. 
Um, so it was digging for fire for me, definitely. So, you know, I, I did I did acting. I, it, was, it was a school production of David Copperfield and I played David Copperfield. And Excellent. I did, did a few bits and bobs and uh, went to UCD where I studied English and philosophy. And I remember on the first day of Dramsock, um, I mean, I might be totally inventing this as a memory, but I think it's true that Willie White was the auditor at the time. Excellent. And sort of sitting in the middle of the floor, surrounded by people and talking with great authority about stuff which, you know, which wouldn't uh, be like Willie at all. No, it's a, yeah, you could see you could see how it's changed, obviously. And uh, so you know, Dramsock was very good at the time. This Conor McPherson had just finished, and uh, yeah, people, lots of good people around. Yeah. Um. So it was very exciting, and like a lot of people at that time, I was working, you know, forty hours a week just to pay for food and other social <laughs> socializing expenses. Of so Dramsock was not, you know, it was, it was something that I was only kind of peripherally involved in. But it was a very exciting time to be interested in theatre. But what what I was doing is going to see a lot of plays. Mm. And so I remember in 94, um, Patrick Mason had revived Observe the Sons of Ulster at the Abbey. And a friend of mine who had done work experience in the Abbey uh, in secondary school snuck me into the lighting box. And David Nolan was the Yes, the lighting I remember guy the well. Time. Yeah. And uh, so I watched the play from the lighting box. Well, yeah. David Nolan, like they had just got this expensive new uh, sound rig for Angels in America, which right, we were okay, about to yeah. do. He was really excited and he was showing this stuff. So saw the play and then went down into the into the bar afterwards and this was the time when, you know, politicians were coming down from Northern Ireland. It was we had just seen the decriminalization of homosexuality in Ireland. I remember the two characters, Piper and, and Craig, kissing on stage and the audible gasp in the auditorium wow. of shock. Not not you know, not negative, but just we've never seen this. Yeah. I mean and yeah, because when it's that close to, you know, decriminalization effectively. Yeah. So like it's you know, wild though that may sound to us, yeah. you know, on a, on the national theatre stage, that's a that's a thing to behold. It was really a thing to behold. And I think that that's it, is that there was just this feeling that we have this play that had premiered nine years previously. That's the really important thing to remember. Like McGuinness yeah. and Mason, uh, under Joe Dowling's artistic directorship, they put this play on while male homosexual acts were still a crime in this country. And, uh, you know, and then they revived it. Uh, so there was that feeling that this is a play that, that is telling us a truth that we've always known is there but preferred to ignore, which was the big thing about the 90s mm. uh, heading into the 2000s. But that was also kind of saying, you know, in relation to, the, to, to Northern Ireland, in relation to the unionist community, we tended to think of unionists at that time as one great big monolithic them. Of course. You know, represented by Ian Paisley. Yeah. And this was a play that was saying, well, first of all, you know, it's a community and therefore there are lots of different kinds of people in there. And then secondly, um, that, you know, look, look a bit more closely. So it was a really good time to go to the theatre. Yeah. It's funny because I, I mean... I remember that kind of mid to late 90s, mm. this huge surge of energy of kind of new writing. I remember being like, you know, a 16 year old kid yeah. in the Peacock for Saturday matinees and just being blown away by the by the caliber of new work that was coming through. And yeah. it it, fe it feels like there was a huge energy around Dublin at mm. the time. Is that, am I, am I, now, but again, am I rose tinted glass in that because it was me and my teenage formative years or is it a, is it a fair assessment of where yeah. Irish theatre was at the time? It's hard to know because I think the thing is when you're young and especially if you're in university, as I know being a lecturer myself, <laughs> the thing that happens when you're young seems like the most exciting thing yeah. um, to a large extent. So, you know, my students now are very excited and animated by Hamilton, for instance. Of course. And it's true that there has never been a thing like Hamilton. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's truth in that. 
But yeah, definitely. I remember, you know, in the late 1990s, I remember seeing the Lean On trilogy premiering in Galway, uh, seeing the Cripple of Inishman and the Gaiety, seeing Macpherson's plays. I was taught by Frank McGuinness. I did an MA in UCD, and I remember him having a conversation with somebody where they were saying, so this new play called Disco Pigs, and I've heard it's really good. And McGuinness was saying, yeah, it's, it's you know really interesting. And right. so so you know to be to be to be around at a time when there were all of these great writers. And actually, I remember McGuinness in the class that I was taught by, and he brought in Gina Moxley and Marina Carr uh, to talk to us. And again, just to, to have that kind of sense of, yeah. of people who were, you know, not, you know, they weren't our age, but they weren't that far off yeah. either. Um, Carr had left UCD like 10 years previously. Real sense of immediacy. So there was a feeling that there was a lot of exciting things happening all across Ireland, actually, um, with companies as well where this was corn exchange was coming out pan pan was there you, you know you had fish amble doing new plays all the time you had blue raincoat loose cannon interesting things happening in the north but also you go to london and a lot of the really good plays would be by irish authors yeah. or have irish actors or irish directors john john crowley for example yeah. was directing a lot of stuff there as well um so it was it was a really exciting and vibrant time and that kind of continued really to about just after kind of 9 11 i think was when there was a a change in things yeah. and for a variety of reasons so for that's a that's a beautiful picture of the overall sweep of things for you specifically then your personal roots so having done english and philosophy yeah um was there a, a fair amount of drama through that english thing and was that is that where you went okay i'm going to keep going at this yeah i think so i, mean, I always knew i wanted to be an academic which okay. uh sounds like a funny thing to say so <laughs> you know later when i started reviewing i would often because you get hate mail uh, you'd often Only get, if you're doing it right. Yeah, well, maybe so. <laughs> but often the hate mail would say, you're a failed playwright or you're a failed actor or whatever. And I'd always say, well, you know, I know I'm not good at that stuff, actually. I just, I'm, you know, I want to be yeah. an academic or, and that's what I do. Um, so, yeah, I was English in UCD at the time. We were lectured by people like Tony Roach and Chris Murray, who, who were very committed, not just to the idea of reading plays, but just going yeah. all the time. And what they're also very committed to, and this is something that's really stayed with me, is being aware of what's happening in other countries. Okay. So I think it's no coincidence you see you know, so many writers coming out of UCD who are influenced by David Mamet, for example. It's because they were taught Glengarry Glen Ross or American Buffalo or whatever in mm -hmm. a lecture somewhere. Um, Carl Churchill, likewise. I remember reading Top Girls at the age of 19. Completely blew my mind. Yeah. Completely. And still does. And, uh, you know, as a teacher now, it's an incredible privilege to go into a first-year class and get that first act into the hands wow. of eight people and say, do something with that. And just to see the discovery, yeah. you know, that those young actors have and that audiences have, it's amazing. It's uh, even the way like kind of big brothers talk about, you know, giving really good records to their younger yeah. brother as he kind of comes along, listen, kid, have a listen to this. Yeah. Can, is it that same kind of vibe? It is really, yeah. And I think that's, so I mean, even in my own teaching, you know, I'm teaching a course at the moment in our English department in, in Galway where I'm teaching things like Shimerica by Lucy uh, Kirkwood and teaching uh, Enron by Lucy Preble, Simon Stevens Pornography, Carol Churchill, Far Away. Right. And it's, it's really about that thing of saying to students who can be trusted to know Martin McDonough and Marina yes. Carr and people like that, th there's all of this other stuff out there and, and make sure that you're aware of that, make sure you're reading it and, and let's see how it influences you. That's fascinating because it feels to me that in the last couple of years, kind of post-crash, yeah. the opportunities, or certainly the, the companies that traditionally would have done the Irish premieres of English and American work, mm. that that has kind of disappeared to a greater or lesser extent. Um, 
and for me the great tragedy is that is that the actors don't get to play the parts mm -hmm. the directors don't get to tackle that work the Irish based writers don't get to see what else is going on and it feels to me that that used to be a thing I mean going right the way back to you know the granddad taking over you know the Virginia Woolf of the world or the Alfie or, or any of those things that yeah. take it at the big stages um, but it seems that like you know the fact that we've seen so little Simon Stevens here or mm. Lucy Preble kind of blows my mind mm -hmm. But I understand that in straightened times, you've got to prioritise where the money's going and, and maybe it's just been focused elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't discussed it with the policymakers, so I'm not going to prejudge too much about what they say. But as an academic, what I would tend to do is look at history and try and form inferences based on that. And I think what history shows us is if you want to have another renaissance in Irish playwriting, get people watching contemporary plays mm. from all over the world now. So you go back Dublin Drama League 1916 to whenever it was, 41, it finished followed by the Gate Theatre. Mm -hmm. The Gate is now known as staging international classics, but for the first 20 years it was staging an awful lot of Irish plays, many of them written by women, who were very stimulated by what they were seeing uh, on, on the Gate stage in terms of international productions. You go to the 50s, they're looking, you know, people are putting on Tennessee Williams, Harold Pinter's early plays, uh, Eugene O'Neill is getting put on, even in the Irish language, Ernest Blythe, most of the Irish language plays the Abbey put on are translations of European plays, contemporary European yeah. plays. And to me, it's, it's no coincidence that the 60s come along and suddenly you have, you know, Mairead Negrod is on trio, yeah. influenced by Brecht, um, certainly in terms of how the audience received it. Uh, you have Eugene McCabe's King of the Castle, and the, the joke at the time was it should have been called Catholics on a Hot Tin Roof, <laughs> uh, because it's Tennessee Williams. Right. And, uh, and even, you know, Friel, Philadelphia, Here I Come Again, mm -hmm. 1964, he's gone to the Guthrie Theatre in Minneapolis, yes. he's seeing Chekhov, he's seeing Hamlet. Um, so it's all, you know, it's all about that. Talk to Gary Hines, what was she seeing in the 70s in the summers in New York? It, it wasn't Irish stuff. Yeah. Talk to Rough Magic. Well, you know, of course, yeah. Yeah, and they were they were put they put on David Mamet, they put on Carol Churchill, they did all of those things, and so that's just what the evidence shows, and I see it with my students as well. Uh, Tom Murphy said this himself when he did an interview in two thousand and two that when he was eighteen to nineteen, he's and this is a quote: anything Irish was a pain in the arse. <laughs> that's what he said, right? Yeah. And to a certain extent, it's it's healthy if you're eighteen or nineteen and you think that's true. Of course. And so for me, with my students, I mean, if if I could have shown my students any play last year to really excite them and make them feel uh, enabled to do something amazing for the Irish theatre. It would have been Far Away by Corcodorica or it would have been Mr. Burns by Rough Magic Seeds, you know, um, which is not to disparage anything else, no, of course. but just what those plays were doing is saying, if you think you know what theatre is, what it can be, what it can say, have a look at this. If you had a magic wand and 30 million to give to the <laughs> Arts Council in the morning, would you prioritise work from English language primarily English speaking countries or do we need to look more to your mainland Europe and mm. those traditions or split it 50-50? I think it's a bit of both I mean I think we definitely need to be more open to to Europe mm -hmm. uh, and again I see this as an academic so the last year I was doing this uh, this project where a group of us from across Europe are trying to put together a creative Europe project on actor training so it's ourselves at NUI Galway, National Theatre of Scotland, National Theatre of Greece, uh, National Theatre in Florence, uh, Dramatic Academy of Arts in Zagreb, Romania, Lithuania, just all over, loads yeah. of really interesting people, academic practitioners, conservatories, universities, the whole, so a very diverse range of things. And something very, two things happened very interestingly in, in the conversation. The first was halfway through our first meeting in Florence, somebody unsurprisingly from France said, well, hang on a minute, Brexit is happening. 
why are we all talking in English? <laughs> okay. And the conversation moved to French. Okay. So this is a thing that I think we need to be thinking about is yeah. that if you're an Irish theatre practitioner, you're used to the idea London is where you go to work, maybe LA, but but what if what if it's in 10 years time? What if it's Wroclaw? Um, what if it's Shanghai? Yeah. And I, I'm not saying that should be an obligation, but it should at least be an option that people should consider. So that's the first thing. But then the second thing is, as you have conversations with people from across Europe, you think that you're speaking the same language. You think when you say an ensemble, yes, that that means the same thing. And then you realize it actually doesn't. Um, or we notice that the, the further west you go, people in this part of Europe are very comfortable with the idea of a theater maker. And they see that as very enabling that, you know, I can go and I can direct it and I can write it and I can devise it with a community audience and I can do the voiceover and I can take the tickets on the door and I can do the whole the thing. the productions model. Yeah, on. exactly. <laughs> which, you know, which, which it, there's so many great examples of the theatre maker, <clears throat> you know, being a very kind of, being a thing that makes people feel very liberated and it can be very democratic. But then there are also practitioners in the room who are saying, no, I've spent 30 years learning how to be a director and I don't think I'm good at a chat right you know and that if you really care about the craft you mm. have to keep practicing it and that you can't be a really good actor director writer without something falling by the wayside yeah and so it's a great example of how culturally when you mix things around your assumptions are constantly being challenged and so for the irish theater i mean pan pan obviously do a lot of work in continental europe there are a lot of practitioners who are seeing a lot of work there too uh, and have done for a long time but I think more systematically, I think we it would be good for Irish theatre to engage more yeah. with international practice and international practitioners. Um, and I also think there's a there is a there is a revolution happening in British playwriting at the moment. Irish playwrights are included in it, and we have very little awareness of it right. here in the country. Certainly, you know, in terms of your average theatre goer, yeah. they're not they're not hearing about Simon Stevens. They're not hearing about a really incredible play like Chimerica. Mm. Um, or The Ferryman by Jez Butterworth or any of these plays that are getting so much attention in England or Scotland at the moment. How do we fix that or should we? I think, uh, I mean, I, I do think that the prioritisation of the Irish play makes sense from one point of view, but I think we need to be a bit broader than that and, and see that it's not just about playwrights. Yeah. That if you have a very, very strong international play, it's a way to develop the craft in terms of directing, design, acting. Um, it's a way to push practitioners. So if we see our theatre ecosystem as involving not, you know, not putting the playwright at the top of the, the, the hierarchy, yeah. but, uh, but saying that when we invest in it, we're investing in something that will actually benefit all of these different mm -hmm. artists and therefore develop audiences in new ways, then I think it would be money well spent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Um, can we talk about archive mm -hmm. uh, and particularly the exciting stuff that's happening out west with you guys? It's like is there anything that compares with it anywhere in the world it feels like it's something pretty goddamn special yeah so we we have a lot of archival holdings in the area of theater in galway and we've been very lucky uh, a lot of people complain about universities and how they're very focused on the science we had a university president who recently finished up who was an engineer by profession but also said that he believed that the archive is like the lab of, of, for the humanities okay. and that it was right for the university to to invest in in these things so uh, we got a lot of support a lot of support from him so just I mean we, we worked with the Abbey Theatre to digitize their archive mm. we've recently finished digitizing the archive of the gate uh, from the Michael Colgan era we hold the archive of Druid Tom Kilroy Siobhan McKenna John Arden and Margareta Darcy uh, the lyric 
Go Arts Festival, Machnus, and probably others that I am very <laughs> tactlessly forgetting. But, but what it means is that for us when we teach our students, if you are an aspiring playwright, to be able to go to the archive and see, here's a script by Yeats, where once he got into a rehearsal room, he was scribbling stuff out. Okay. That's really good. To go to the Tom Kilroy archive and see the rejection letters and realize here's somebody who's a very high profile figure, yeah. but he had to go through this process. Yeah. It makes it, so for the young playwrights, it works really well for design, all the rest of it, but particularly acting. Yes. So one of the examples we often give is, so 1985, Bodygon Gara premieres, um, and we have a very, very grainy, poor quality 1985 video sure. of Siobhan McKenna playing that role with Marie Mullen. And then you can then watch Tom Murphy's own production of it in the Peacock from 2001 with, I think, Pauline Flanagan playing uh, Mamo. And then Druid did it again three or four years ago with Marie now playing Mamo, yeah. and that's there too. Or you can see Donald McCann playing Frank Hardy and then watch Ray Fiennes playing Frank Hardy. And so I think the total number of videos across all of the different bits and pieces is about 900. Wow. Yeah, and so, so just that ability to be able to go and, and see to see Irish theatre, if you, if you read the history, so many of the histories of Irish theatre are a playwright did, did this and a playwright did that. Yeah. And let's celebrate that, that's great. However, it, the actors <laughs> and the designers, and, and if, you, if you just shift your focus and start mm -hmm. to see that actually this is a history that involves actors and to see the development of a career, somebody like Marie Mullen, to see the choices she makes, to see how she develops through roles, to see how when she's doing Mamo, she's, she's sort of having to shake off the ghost of Siobhan McKenna of and make it her own, but also shaking off the ghost of, uh, of you know, Mag and Beauty Queen of Linan, which is a very similar role, um, or sh the, the ghost of the Widow Quinn in Playboy in the Western World. All of that's amazing, mm. you know? And then, you know, minute books. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this recently um, on, on a social media post I, I put up where one of the things we discovered, we, we put online the minute books of the Abbey for the years when Yates was there, so the board meetings up to 1939. And in the mid-1930s, there was a proposal in the Abbey following government policy, following the way most businesses across Europe were going at the time, not just to cut salaries, but to cut the salaries of women to a greater extent than they cut the salaries of men. So I, I don't see that that would be problematic at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and again, you have to put it in context to sure. say the government were passing laws at yeah. this time. So, so this is the important thing about it is it was seen as the norm it was seen as right okay to, to have women get lower pay for the same work mm -hmm. and what happened is the minutes show this the abbey company the men and the women came together and said no pay us the same and then yates kind of showed up as he often did at a board meeting and said of course pay them all you're stopping ridiculous wow. um yeah and so it's, it's, it's a great example. I mean, that's a part of our theatre history that is so relevant to so many of the debates that we have going on now. Yeah. Um, you know, I talked a minute ago about the, that idea of the ensemble. What better example is there actually of a real ensemble than people coming together and saying, you have to pay us the same, yeah. at a time when that was not the norm and when it would have been easier for of people, course. for the men to just pocket yeah. the difference. And uh, so there's so much there there's so much there for teaching for research but also just preserving it I think is, yeah. is really well it's important. one of the fascinating things for me like you know I bang on all the time about being third generation or whatever else mm. and I'm the idea of those lineages mm. uh, fascinate me but also the ephemeral nature of what we do the fact that 
you were there for digging for fire at the time, but for anyone who wasn't, it, in many respects, it it disappears. Mm. And so it's kind of a, a big reason behind this the existence of this podcast is to kind of to capture those voices to talk about to get that snapshot of what Irish theatre is or was at that time, and you know that fascinates me. The idea, as you say, of being able to go and watch and compare and contrast performances across decades even mm. is an invaluable resource. Mm. It is, and I, I, I mean, there are other parts of it that are important as well. I mean, some of it has to do with your national culture. Mm. So if you want to, uh, often we have students who are very interested in doing work on Lady Gregory, for okay. instance. And if you want to do a PhD in Lady Gregory, you might well think Galway is a good place to do it because that's where she lived and, and so on. But invariably, the, the thing you run into is actually all her papers are in New York. Right. Most of the Gate Archive is in Northwestern, just north of Chicago. Lennox Robinson is somewhere in, I forget exactly where, yeah. somewhere in the United States. And so, so there is that thing there. If When you talk about history, history is the answer to the question of how did we get to where we are now. And if the source for that stuff isn't available to you in your own country, even if it's a bus ride away mm. from Dublin to Galway, which is really easy, <laughs> I, I must emphasize this. That post was sponsored by the tourist board. Yeah. <laughs> um, at least is that option available to yeah. you. So, so it is about preserving that. And the more I use archives, the more aware I am that we just don't know what's going to be interesting to future generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were doing our research about the Abbey Archive, we went to places all over the world to see how they did it. And we went to one place where they said that when they digitize show programs, they don't bother doing the ads. Wow. Yeah. And this really struck me as, uh, I mean, I understood why they were just trying to make a decision about money, sure. but it stru- struck me as a terrible mistake. Yeah. Because if you look at ads in the Abbey Show programs going back through the decades, you can learn so much about well, absolutely. Yeah, who was going to the theatre. But yeah, it's the ads for, for coats, it's separate to the ad for tobacco. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. But that's the, you go, like, look in the 30s and 40s, the ads are Rolo, Arrow, um, Dry Cleaning and Harold's Cross. But also the Happy Ring House in O'Connell Street appears right. all the time. So if you think about it, right, engagement rings and bars of chocolate, what is that telling you? That your audience, obviously, there are people going there on dates. Yeah. Um, you then get into the 70s and you start having you know, new houses that are energy efficient. Wow. Commuter tickets, uh, cigarettes, alcohol. Into the 80s, it's package holidays. Right, okay. But in the Celtic Tiger, yeah. the most frequent ad is invest your money in Anglo-Irish Bank. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, but that's it. so that's the thing. Like if you, We always ask the question, who, who went to see these plays? Yeah. And if you can find out what people were selling them, It'll at give the you time. A, f- a fair indication. It really will. And, yeah. ter- and also, you talk in terms of context and stuff. Mm. I mean, I love the idea that even the Ross O'Carroll Kelly plays, yeah. when you go and you're in the audience and you see a thousand Rosses sitting around you, many of whom are entirely oblivious to the fact that they are Ross. I, like, I love the, like, you know, audience. I mean, I know theatre club talk about designing their audience, that you yeah. kind of curate the people who are there in the room. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah. Really incredible. Um, Talk to me about social media and mm. theatre because this is an area of expertise. Um, mm. How rapidly are things changing in that area and how essential or fundamental a tool has it become? Yeah, it really is essential. I think it's, uh, I mean, two things I think you have to see as, as really fundamental to how Irish theatre has developed in the last 10 years. And they both relate to social media. One is Panty's Noble Call yes. and the other is Waking the Feminists. Yeah and take social media out of the picture and those two things look very different so yeah if they exist at all exactly yeah yeah so i mean thinking about panty's noble call i think 
a huge part of the significance of that was that it happened on the stage of the National Theatre mm. and that it happened in a context where a lot of the broadcast media and the print media didn't want to go anywhere near Panty because they were worried about court cases. Yes. And however it happened, I don't know the details, it'll probably come out in a few years' time, Panty was invited to be on the Abbey stage and gave the speech. Yeah. And there's something about that speech that you know yourself as an actor, you can only do a speech like that before an audience. Mm -hmm. Panty in that speech is filling a room with hundreds of people in it, getting their attention, holding their attention. So the liveness of that speech is absolutely essential to the yeah. kind of passion that's there. But at the same time, 800,000 hits on YouTube within the next couple of weeks yeah. is the other side of that story. And there's no way of kind of proving this, but I honestly believe take Panty's noble call out of the picture and would the, would the marriage equality referendum have passed? Yeah. I don't know. I think it's a really valid question because it, I mean, there is a consensus that it was the personal testimonies that swung it. That yeah. once you realise that these were human people who had the same needs and wants and desires as anybody else did, yeah. that that was what swung it. And, and to have, like you say, to have something that high profile and on the literal and metaphorical platform of the National Theatre stage, mm. there is a weight to that, there is a power to that, there's a fundamental kind of connection to the Irish psyche, I guess, to some extent as well, mm. that it, it clearly it did plug into that directly. Mm. I think so. And then Waking the Feminists was, was another fascinating example of it where I think all of us um, who work in different facets of the industry, for Waking the Feminists for all sorts of reasons was a turning point. And, you know, I remember when it happened and I, reading the announcement of the program and yeah I noticed that there were very few female directors and I, I couldn't see a play by yeah. a female dramatist and then I saw of course yeah me me Malzer was in there and I remember thinking at the time it's see again this is part of it is you know sometimes knowing about history can help you to change things but sometimes it can make you feel defeated right where like I know 1975 there's an archival thing of the Abbey putting together a list of 20 female playwrights and saying let, just after they had done uh, Katie Roach right with Joe Dowling saying let's produce these women and then they don't okay and then 1982 Dublin Theatre Festival and the Irish Times have a competition to find new female playwrights and they get 200 entries and they produce six and you know some of them we hear of again others we don't Shara Bank is founded in 83 the Field Day Anthology Controversy of yeah. Omitting Women, 1991, and Nulo Fuelon says there will be watchful women to make sure this never happens again. Uh, 1993, you have the There Are No Irish Women Playwrights Festivals happening, saying this will never happen again. And it feels like a turning point until it doesn't, until it yeah. just goes back to the way it was. And so for me, and looking back on it now, I, I know this was the wrong reaction, but for me when it happened, I was I had a kind of sense of resignation about it like this is wrong and this is bad but it's just this stuff that we keep getting yeah. and there'll be an outcry and there'll be an apology and they'll program a couple of things into the end of the year and it'll just keep the cycle will yeah. continue and then it didn't mm. and the reason it didn't is because of social media it's because of the, the migration of those things from the kind of relatively closed wor a world of Facebook where people's personal testimonies uh, started out into Twitter suddenly made people talk about it in a new way and we suddenly started to feel which is unusual for social media that actually maybe we can do something about this yeah um and maybe we should stop feeling defeated or feeling complacent or or just uh, putting up with it let's actually do something this time to make sure that in addition to protesting we actually bring about the change 
So, yeah, I think, again, without it, it needed to go to the Abbey as well and mm -hmm. to have the speeches there, but to broadcast them out as well. Yeah. I spoke to people all over the world who were watching those speeches live right. on that day, which shows you something of the impact of the thing. Um, so it's the combination of those things. It's, it's seeing that idea that social media is a performance space like a theatre and linking up with it in ways to, to make these things. And, you know, in relation to Waking the Feminist, a lot has been done as a teacher again just even in the way we put together our curricula mm -hmm. or how we how we how we talk to our students yeah uh it's been hugely influential it's been fantastic but history shows that the sector and this is true for universities it's true for every form of yeah. patriarchal institution that there is yeah. that there is a way that these things they kind of assimilate the protest they take it in and then they just kind of go back to their old tricks. Well, that, I mean, that's the fear that you do enough of a token gesture that it is the release valve and the pressure comes out and then it can kind of roll on. It, yeah. perhaps if it does feel different mm. this time around. It feels like it's been a more seismic, you know, shift. Um, and again, it's only anecdotal stuff, but what I love is first time around, which was five or six years ago doing these podcasts, no man ever said no when asked to come on. And a number of incredibly high-profile, successful women said, oh, no, I couldn't be talking about myself or I'm not busy enough work-wise at the moment or whatever. Cut to five or six years later, and it's now post-Waking the Feminist. Not one woman I've approached to be on this has said no, and I've been turned down by a couple of fellas. So so it's yeah. really, so that swing for me, anecdotal though it may be, I, I just feel that there's a different temperature in the air around it. There is, but there's a lot of work still to be done. So Absolutely. I, I mean, as a teacher, you know, producing I hope the next generation of theatre makers the next generation of theatre audiences I'm still very aware of how gender works mm -hmm. and while it's true that I hate to use the phrase young people these days um, <laughs> have a very different conception of gender in its kind of fluidity yeah. compared to what would have been the case when I was growing up in Dublin um, you know 25 years ago or whatever having said that there, there are very clear examples of what you're talking about and I kind of jokingly sometimes call it the Russell Brand phenomenon whereby a young man who hasn't read a text is often more likely to express an opinion ab about the text than a young woman who has read it. Wow, okay. You know, and, and that's a lot to do with how young men are being brought up mm -hmm. and how we as parents and how we as teachers make people feel that their voice matters mm -hmm. and how we respond to them when they speak. And so, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, the university sector in particularly my own university has dealt a lot in the last number of years with issues of gender inequality and the funny thing about it is, like ask any man are you a misogynist and he's going to say no I'm not and he'll give you several examples sure. I love yeah. my mommy how could yeah. I be exactly yeah of how he's not right so so that's the problem is that that's where up to three or four years ago that's where it stopped mm. the problem must be with somebody else it's not me and I think that the, the change now is the realization for men I hope for, for many men anyway that we actually are part of the problem. In fact, we, we are <laughs> yeah. the problem uh, in a lot of cases as well. And so one of the things I do find myself thinking or having to remind myself a lot of the time is just shut up. Yeah. Shut up and listen, you know, and speak when it's important, obviously, uh, to, to support people uh, and not hide away from things, but, but also just shut up and listen. And I don't see, and this is, this is across the world. Yeah. Uh, it's across nationalities, it's across everything. The 18-year-old man who is being produced on our planet across cultures at the moment will express an opinion mm. without knowing what he's talking about. And I don't think that's healthy for anybody. 
and uh, including the man himself because he's always worried about being caught out yeah so talk to me a bit about Galway itself mm. and the, the concept of being located outside the capital city of Dublin I mean it's hard to look at the arts artistic life in Galway and not go I think it's pretty well served mm. uh, does it feel like an incredibly vibrant place to be yeah it is there are great people in Galway so you know we have Killian Murphy um, in grief is the thing with feathers at the moment in Galway and I think the thing the thing about Galway one of the nice things about Galway is that it's it's it used to be a thing where people would say Galway is part of the regions I hate the word regional yes. I hate it uh, but people would say that so that you know Ireland was on the periphery of Europe Galway was on the periphery of Ireland so we were on the margins of the margins of the margins and instead of seeing that I think now we see that actually we're kind of smack in the center of everything because uh, you know you've got New York that way is only five hours away yeah. Dublin is three hours away London is pretty close as well Edinburgh is there Europe is right beside you and so the kind of the let's say the Druid model for example of, of you make something that might be rehearsed in Dublin but it opens in Galway and it uses that kind of Galway experience as a launching pad for, for taking it everywhere. Yeah. Um, which we also see the Arts Festival adopting as well. That's very exciting. And that is a good model for how to, to make art in a small place like Galway that actually can't really sustain many people making a living mm -hmm. in the industry. But we do also with people like Andrew Flynn. My second year students at the moment are devising a, a performance with Fregoli, with Maria Tivenin. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, so... so there are you know, young companies who are doing really good things there as well. We have the Capital of Culture coming in 2020. And I think we have to just see that as a really good opportunity. I think if, if the Capital of Culture thing is just a year-long extended version of the Arts Festival, then that'll be nice. But I think in some fundamental way, it will have failed. Right. I think the real challenge for us is to use that as a launching pad to something that's going to change how we are five ten years down the road right. and not just for Galway uh, but for the for the country really and I think we have huge opportunities to to you know to think about how we how we train people to be theatre makers but also how we train them to be what are now being called creative producers for example yeah um, so huge opportunities there that I think we really need to think about it's exciting times mm. um, as you look back on your life in theatre mm. what what are, what are you now what are you still most excited about and what are you most proud of at this stage hmm. I think there's a lot of exciting stuff happening so I mean I was at the Unmanageable Sisters in the Abbey last week and it shouldn't be like this uh, but to see 15 women on the end at the end of that play on stage uh, singing the National Anthem even though I had problems with the, the, yeah. the use of the National Anthem somebody pointed out to me afterwards that uh, you know, she said we're so used to seeing men standing in a field singing the national anthem why is it that there's something uh, dissonant about about seeing women in the same situation yeah. and it's one of those things where you're looking at it and saying I can't believe we've never done, done this before mm. and it's happening at last so so that's very exciting looking at uh, you know Rough Magic Seeds last year you see the young people who are coming through into the profession now really exciting um, looking at the cast of um, the, the adaptation of Louise O'Neill's uh, yeah. asking for it and thinking about how you know, most of those are people who've come through the Lear, for instance. So, so the number of people who we have in terms of acting, design, directing, coming through is really exciting into an industry that is now doing things differently. You've got Selena Cartmel at the gate doing really exciting work and 
at the same time, certainly in Galway, the Galway Arts Festival are doing amazing things. Um, so there's a huge cause for excitement. And just the question is about sustainability, about keeping people here, yeah. about enabling people to actually make a living, um, about thinking about those things about, I mean, for me, one of the biggest problems is, you know, I work an awful lot with practitioners. So we work with Druid, we work with the Arts Festival, we work with Machnus, we work with the Abbey. And there, there are practitioners in and out of our classrooms all the time. And our teachers are people who direct or they write or whatever. So, so that's very integrated. Mm. But I think the broader integration still in Ireland between, say, universities or academics, uh, practitioners, policymakers, producers, and audiences yeah. is not, not so good, I think, compared maybe to other places. And while it's hard to, to get that right, I think we could do a lot more to, to build on that. Any magical wands to fix it? Just keep talking about it. Keep talking to each other, I think, is a big part of it. And um, I mean, I, I, I miss the fact that 15 years ago there was an Irish theatre magazine that would come out every Absolutely. quarter to yeah. kind of talk about these things for the theatre community, but also for theatre fans, that it was nationwide. Uh, you know, I'm not saying it was perfect, but it was there. and It, it was an incredible um, resource. Mm, and it's gone. And so again, you know, as, as someone who's, who looks a lot to, to what's happened, I can find out what was on the stage in Dublin in 1845 very easily. But I worry that 100 years from now, somebody asks the question, what was on in Dublin or Galway uh, in, in 2018? And they're not gonna find an answer to that question because all the records are on blogs or yeah. web pages or whatever. And there's no concerted effort being made to actually record those things. So unless unless the Arts Council has a kind of treasure trove of records of what's happening that they can lodge with the National Library or something yeah. like that, when everybody's dead, yeah. you know, it, I, that does worry me yeah. because I think that if your work matters, it, it should be written about. Um, you know, St. Pat's play Bowes, a journalist goes, writes a report, and it's published in the newspaper. So the same should happen for theatre and not just in Dublin. It should happen for, you know, Sligo. Cork, Galway, you, you name it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, as you say, there is a, a huge wave of new talent coming along that I think people are quite excited by. Mm. Um, I worry about the sustainability of the the infrastructure of the industry around it. Mm. Um, am I being way too pessimistic, or are there reasons for concern? I think there are reasons for concern. I, I think there's there are opportunities as well. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in Singapore. And uh, I was at a place there called the LaSalle College of the Arts, which is a major kind of training center for theater, film, and other performing arts, and set up, of course, by a, a monk from Mayo, of, of course. <laughs> of course it yeah. was. <laughs> but what's interesting, so Singapore is different from Ireland in a lot of ways, but also similar, similar population, very dependent on foreign direct investment. And in the recent past, the government of Singapore decided to put a huge amount of money into the creative arts. Okay. Because they saw that if you have a good creative arts infrastructure, it, it helps you in all of these other ways. Um, so they put money into it. And the building that LaSalle have is really impressive. Um, really impressive. And the, the kind of work that they're doing where I, you know, I sat in on classes where people are doing Suzuki method and like really in the original way that it was with the okay. bamboo yeah. sticks being banged on the floor. Um, that soldier. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> But then another one where they're doing like, a, you know, rehearsing urine town and uh, I'm thinking about digital projections and and so on. So 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 there is that there's that example of somewhere like Singapore that will say, 
but for because they have an economy that is similar to Ireland's, yeah. they believe that, and they're instrumentalizing it and they're using it, you could say, uh, but they're saying they're going to put money in the creative arts. Yeah. And so in Ireland, we have a similar thing with the, with Creative Ireland, which I know Tanya Bonatti has just um, taken over with. And I think if anything is going to make it work, maybe there's hope in something like that. Yeah. You know, but other than that, I think it's just it's kind of up to all of us to, to keep actually talking about it and talking to the people who who need to be persuaded yeah. and persuading them. Not not, you know, no one has. No one is persuaded by entitlement. Nobody is persuaded by complaints. They're yeah. they're persuaded by seeing good stuff, and seeing this the difference that it makes. Yeah, I mean, I think the argument for me is always look at how far above our weight we're punching yeah. and have been for a long period of time. It seems to me that a comparatively small investment would be leveraged with multiple times over in terms of a return. And it's not just the man does not live on bread alone, and that yeah. it would be great for the overall well-being of the country, but. You know, I think the global reach of Irish arts can only be a positive thing for the economy generally. Yeah, that's what I hope something like 2020 yeah. will enable us to do, is to start thinking about that, where it should be the case that people will come from all over the world to, to come here, for example, to train or to learn about yeah. how we do things. Because of that, we do punch above our weight in all sorts of ways. Um, but I think also that there needs to be a thing where I think that... that paradoxically that needs to be better appreciated by people mm-hmm. i mean uh, the example i always give is think back to the 20 pound note with wb8 on it right yeah that had the abbey's logo in the background you go online you look at it, it had the abbey's logo in it yeah. so the way that our government was going out to the world like other countries they put presidents and queens on their banknotes and it's a way of saying we've been around for a long time yeah. if you take this note your money will be worth something and what we did is we said here's the logo of the abbey here's yates this is how you can trust us Right, and it's pretty potent. It is really, and like what that means is, I always think you know the, the hilarious thing about this is the Abbey is the only theater in the world where you could buy a theater ticket with a banknote that had a logo of the theater ticket that you were that you <laughs> like were actually, Disney dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to the bar and you, you buy a pint of Guinness, paying with coins that have the Guinness logo on the back. Go. So yeah, it's, uh, so it says. But the the point I'm making though is that the state has been has been using our culture mm. to legitimate itself to gain credit for itself since its foundation i mean that's why the abbey got a subsidy yeah is not because they they wanted to do the right thing by the arts it's because they wanted to say well the abbey thinks the free state should exist and therefore you know maybe other people will agree yeah so so i think there needs to be a recognition of that uh and i think it's it's again it's about persuading ordinary people going back to like the panty noble call thing it's it's humanizing it it's getting it out there in ways that people can actually identify with and the problem is we, we have a kind of public discourse that is very anti what is perceived to be a waste of money mm-hmm. and that old kind of how many hospital beds could we pay for yeah. with this sort of argument, um, that kind of knee-jerk thing. So that's, that's the battle we need to fight. Finally then, mm. if you had one wish for Irish theatre, what would it be? Hmm. Just to say the obvious thing, I think more money. You know, it's, yeah. it's really as simple as that, like double the funding. Mm and we might start getting somewhere and it's like you said one of the problems that irish theater has is that we're right beside london and we're right beside edinburgh and people judge us by the standards that they see there and that's both a blessing and a curse yeah it's a blessing because actually people here like you said they look at that and they say okay we're going to actually measure ourselves up against that and do work that despite having a fraction of the budget can actually stand on its own two feet in those places so we see drood going to the edinburgh festival with Godot. Mm. 
and we see so many Irish writers getting the work put on in London we see so many Irish actors doing really well over there yeah. you know um, one of the best things I've seen in the last 10 years in London was Phil Lloyd's Shakespeare trilogy the Donmar Claire Dunn yep. you know people went there talking about Harriet Walter at the start they came out talking about Claire Dunn and so that's that's a really strong example of the quality of Irish acting that is out there at the moment um, and it'd be nice if we could just keep some of it here yeah so yeah I, I think in terms of hospital beds like if you double the funding for the arts it's not actually gonna do anything about your hospital beds yeah. it's not and uh, it, I think we could prove actually fairly credibly that the money would come back several times over fantastic I love it and I look forward to cashing those checks <laughs> Patrick thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been yeah. an absolute pleasure great thanks Mel so there you have it the brilliant Patrick Lonergan so delighted to finally have him on the podcast I know it's kind of an unusual one in that we didn't spend so much of the time talking about him personally but I just think his take and the kind of the scope of his knowledge on the industry and the sector as a whole was kind of so valuable that I just let him run with it rather than bringing it back to him all the time uh, I hope you enjoyed it that's one I am really really glad that we have done and so that brings us to our usual weekly round up of all the theatrical goings on around the country at the Abbey Theatre our national theatre the unmanageable sisters continues there at the gate they have the last few performances of look back in anger and also late at the gate with the brilliant Emma Kirwan uh, art continues at the gaiety theatre well worth checking out if you get the chance um, at theatre upstairs they have lyrics coming up with the brilliant Danny Galligan and Tom Moran I am very excited to go and catch that starting to see some trailers for it now and uh, getting very excited indeed uh, at the new theatre in Temple Bar they have Sally Denver Matthew written by and starring Gilly O'Shea Smock Alley has Daddy Long Legs at Dreacht out in Blanche they have Take Off Your Cornflakes with Pat Nolan uh, and at the Viking they have Kevin McAleer with Guru out in Clontarf. Uh, the Dolman Theatre has Love in the Wild at Bewley's Cafe Theatre they have the brilliant My Left Nut one of the big smash hits from Show in a Bag Last Fringe. Uh, at the Project Arts Centre brilliant dance piece State of Exception by the fantastic Catherine Young and of course that's followed by Trist from the brilliant Sickle Moon you heard Jedda and Finbar on the show a couple of weeks ago. I am so looking forward to getting back to seeing that show. As we head south to the Cork at the Everyman, they have Druid's production of Waiting for Godot. West to Galway at the Town Hall, they have Grief is the Thing with Feathers, starring the brilliant Killian Murphy. Uh, as we head a little bit further south from Galway, down to Limerick, and uh, Don Witcherly's in town with My Real Life, and that is at the Bell Table. And up north in Belfast at the Lyric, they have We'll Walk Hand in Hand and Dr. Scroggy's War. So look, that is us. That's episode 20 in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of ireland's leading theater makers but in the meantime this has been the rise productions irish theater podcast for angus og mcanally i'm angus og mcanally we'll see you next week 